Good morning, everyone. Let's make that prayer our own, shall we? God, this, uh, this song is our prayer that you would make us one. And may we um, recognize our own need to be drawn into a kind of likeness that lives inside your very own nature. So help us to follow the Lord Jesus in this. And may this moment that we've pulled aside from the world, a moment where we just dedicate ourselves to seeking your face, be a transforming moment today for every one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. That's not just a great opening line for a Dickens novel. It also is a great um, opening for the, the ministry of James, who was the brother of Jesus. There's a bunch of James in the Bible, but specifically, uh, I want to talk for a second about uh, Jesus' brother, James. Let me s- set this up. After being skeptical about Jesus for his entire ministry, James was finally converted, apparently by the evidence of the resurrection. I've asked my own sons this, and I said, you know, what would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was God? And... Uh, uh, my youngest son said, um, I, Dad, I think that ship has pretty much sailed. So, uh, you know, in other words, nothing. But in this particular case, the miracle of the resurrection converted James. And he's not just converted. Eventually, he's put in charge of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is, you understand, in the New Testament uh, sense, is the home church. It's the mother church, right? It's the sending church. And just to describe it, it's the best of times, man. The church is huge. It's wildly successful, thousands of converts. It's turning God's city upside down. They estimate that up to a third of the uh, population of Jerusalem was, was uh, Jesus followers. The people who believed in Jesus were a very diverse group. There was poor people, rich people, religious leaders believed. They think that that's where we got some of the detail about the, the uh, trial of Jesus from converted members of the Sanhedrin. They joined the church eventually. Uh, Jews believed, Gentiles believed. After a really rough start, you knew some of the early persecution there in the book of Acts, after a really rough start, the church was actually enjoying a sort of enviable position in the middle of the first century, sort of atop of the center of religious life. It was enjoying enormous respect in the general population. Jesus and Judaism seemed to be finding their way together in the middle of the first century, if you can believe it. But if you read James' letter, he he wrote a letter. The brother of Jesus wrote a letter, and we have it recorded for us in the end of your New Testament. And if you read that letter, you read it was the worst of times in some sense because not all was not all right under the surface. If you take the subjects of that letter, they're not just sort of random subjects that he teaches about. They're actually specifically addressing real issues. You realize that there was a church full of problems. They had trials. They had division. They had partiality. They had judgmental hearts. They had strife. They had infighting. They had a very hard time integrating the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, the well-connected and the disconnected. Everyone was speaking, nobody was listening. They were petty about many things. uh, James was was like herding cats, or as someone once put it, more like maybe pushing a wheelbarrow full of bullfrogs. You know, just trying to keep this thing together. They were fighting, they were warring over wages, business, legal matters, leadership positions. They were claiming to have faith in Jesus, but they were just living the way they used to live in their old life. They were befriending the world. They were refusing to submit to God and refusing to humble themselves with one another. They were thinking evil of each other. They were speaking evil of each other. Their tongues were on fire, dividing the church, cursing and blessing at the exact same time. 
You know, if they could have, these Christians would have blogged, they would have social networked against each other, they would have unfriended, they would have started Twitter storms or merely uh, left mean voicemails if they were true barbarians. Uh, But like I said, the best of times, the worst of times. Here's the kicker, okay, you ready? The kicker is when this letter was written, about 60 AD, all these people, the rich, the poor, the powerful, the powerless, the connected, the disconnected, all of them, get this, were less than 12, 10 years from total decimation. They didn't know it, but that's the truth. Yep, in less than 10 years, the Romans are going to come and the Roman uh, general Titus is going to smash this city. And as you know, I mean, if the, if the city is made up of one-third Christians, it's going to smash this church. It's going to smash the city. It's going to smash this church. Josephus tells us 1.1 million people in Jerusalem are going to be slaughtered. Another 100,000 of them are going to be carted off into slavery. The city will be burned. The temple's going to be torn down brick by brick. And it's all going to come crashing down on them in very short order. And guess what? This is fascinating. Guess what? When Jerusalem was being overrun, history tells us that Christians suddenly, quickly, immediately united. And it became a sort of theme for them for the next 300 years. They suddenly needed each other. And they would be a persecuted minority, like I said, for three centuries. They urgently, some would say aggressively, began to love one another. When their physical lives and when the message of Jesus was on the line, their pettiness, just became exceedingly petty and for the most part they left it behind what's my point my point is that all of their games their pettiness their divisions all of it probably seemed to be a luxury of margin now why you think about that for a second that their pettiness their division their divisiveness was a luxury of having margin from sitting fat and happy atop a place of cultural privilege and success where one can afford to cast stones and quibble about details. And so that causes me to wonder, bring that all the way up to the present, is that us? I sort of wonder, is that the church in the West? Is the Western church as fighting, nitpicking, splitting, uh, denominationally driven, critiquing other Christians kind of church, is it a product of privilege? Is it a luxury of lethargy? I wonder. I mean, we now know we have data coming in from the church around the world, and um, the church in in the West is struggling, but the church in the South and the East is just exploding. If you think, well, Christianity is so passe, you need to interview somebody from the rest of the world. And they're telling you that Christianity is just exploding in in the East and in the South and in, um, in all places other than in the West. And it's not like this. You know, the church in China, they've got denominations and they've got immaturity and they've got squabbles and stuff like that, but not like this, not like us. Mm -mm. The church in Pakistan has denominations. We have firsthand access to that. We have a partnership in Pakistan. Pastor Rashid Masih is kind of letting us know what it's like on the ground there where 5%, only 5% of the population in Pakistan is Christian. Well, we know they have denominations there. We know that they have little squabbles and infighting, but not like this, not like us, not like we do. Is disunity a product of privilege? In other words, something that only happens when you've got lots of margins to think and squabble. And, and when you're not being overrun by persecution or scattered by invading pagan oppression. I wonder. Well, I know this. I know this. That the church in Jerusalem lost its appetite 
and in fact lost its capacity for infighting when they were being killed, banished, oppressed, and displaced. And I just wonder if that's our future in the West. And if so, there's a silver lining. We'll find ourselves backing, backing, backing up against an increasingly harshly aggressive secular culture and finding ourselves bumping into brothers and sisters. You're here? I guess we're together in this. (laughs) The church learned then that if disunity is a result of luxury, it is a luxury it sorely cannot afford. And maybe that's why Jesus prayed what he prayed on the night that he was betrayed. The song we just heard sung for us was based on this prayer. Let's read it, shall we? John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus prayed. I pray for all those who will ever believe in me through my apostles' message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. You know what strikes every Christian who's ever read this prayer? Is that Jesus was thinking about them. That's what hits them. That's what hits me is you go, oh my goodness, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was thinking about me. And you say to yourself, what was on his mind when you were on his mind? What was on Jesus' mind when you were on his mind? We'll go back to the prayer. May they be one. There's a one-word answer to that question. What was on his mind when you were on his mind? And the answer is unity. That's what was on his mind. When he was thinking about you, he was thinking about unity. So that's how important unity is. When Jesus looked into the future and saw you believing in him, Top of his wish list, top of his wish list, was that we would be unified. So, then Jesus outlines in two verses incredibly important things about unity. In just these two verses, he tells us what the prototype of unity is. He tells us what the provenance of unity is. I'll explain that in a second. And he explains what the product of unity is. Let's start with the the, uh, prototype of unity. If you believe in Jesus... And I don't expect that everybody in this room does, by the way. So, you know, like Dan said, we really heartily encourage people to invite their friends to our church. And so you might be kicking the tires on Jesus. And I'm just so glad you're here. And maybe you're in investigation mode. And if so, this might be a problem for you. But for Christians, this is what you've gotten through to. Is you believe something totally wild and scandalous about God. In fact, you believe something so wild and scandalous, no other person in any other religion believes it except you. So it sets you apart from all other world religions. In fact, it's so scandalous that it's considered abominable heresy by your friendly uh, Muslim neighbors, if they were to be honest with you about it. And uh, in fact, it's also considered so objectionable, so unreasonable, that entire branches of the faith historically have broken off because they just couldn't accept what Jesus teaches here in this prayer. Well, what I'm talking about, of course, is the Trinity, right? It's the idea of God being one and God also being three, Now, I should just clarify, as soon as anybody throws out the word Trinity, that Christians do not believe in three gods, all right? We're monotheists. And that does put us in the camp with Jews and with Muslims and Sikhs. They're all, we're all all monotheists. We believe that there's one God, one final first cause, creator of everything. But we believe that this God, this one God, is tri-personal. That the one God's nature is a community of three persons, Father, Son, and Son and Holy Spirit. 
Now, whatever you think about this doctrine, and people often think it's kind of weird or kooky or logical or whatever, but whatever else you think about this doctrine, what you can't say is that people probably made it up to make a more user-friendly religion. You know, that wasn't it. You know, in the councils of the early church, they said, you know what, let's invent the Trinity so that, you know, we'll bring them in by the droves, this completely illogical thing that no one could understand. It wasn't a church growth technique is what I'm saying. The reason why Christians believe in the Trinity is only because it was revealed to us. It was handed to us by someone we love and trust and that is Jesus. And so because it was handed to us by Jesus, we choose to accept it. And so it's scandalous. It was scandalous back then. It's scandalous today. Three in one. So if you want to know the details on that, we explain it. And I think we can get around to the place where you can understand and actually see the beauty in the Trinity. And it is a beautiful thing when you think about it for a second. And the implications for how it puts love at the center of the new community. All that stuff. We can talk about that more in investigations. And by the way, we're doing that Tuesdays in October. And you can come out midweek and throw your questions out about God, Trinity, you know, that stuff. Anything you want. Um, to talk about so that's what we do in investigations but for now I just want us to see that the very idea of the Trinity the threeness and the oneness of God is the model that Jesus has in mind when he thinks about unity in the church that's what's on his mind it's the prototype for church unity the very nature of God so when you think about the oneness that Jesus imagined for us you have to think about it in the terms of how Jesus thought about his relationship with the father just going to one of the Gospels uh, in John, here's how he talked about that in stark and startling terms. John chapter 18, verse 16. I and the Father who sent me judge together. Same chapter, verse, six, uh, verse uh, 26. I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Verse 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Verse 42. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Skipping to chapter 10, verse 15, as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And verse 29, the Father and I are one, the most scandalous thing he ever said. And so getting all that in one hit, you know, just throwing it out there, like you pull one of those out and, you know, you sort of, you can quibble with it, but just throwing it all out there in one hit, you realize why they strung him up, right? You realize why they killed him. Because he said obviously heretical things. No one talks like this except crazy people right? No one talks like this. You, 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 this. This is a heretic. This is an obvious heretic. Unless, unless, unless he predicts his own resurrection from the dead and it's verified by many witnesses and he gives convincing proofs that he has in fact risen from the dead and now his own brother, once a skeptic, now converted based on the evidence of the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus and now they're all convinced and bringing validity to the crazy stuff he said about God. Namely, that the one God is tripersonal in nature. The Father and I are one. And so, uh, that doctrine of God, fixed by the teaching and the resurrection of Jesus, is the backbone of the way Christians ought to think about their relationships with each other. And when you think about how startling and stark is the intimacy and the beauty of the fellowship amongst the persons of the triune God, then that says that, that our unity needs to be something more than just theory, right? A thing that's beautiful in theory, but ugly in reality. You know, kind of like American unity these days, right? It's all written, every, every coin you pull up, e pluribus unum, right? Out of the many, one. And that could not be more of a farce today than it maybe has ever been in the history of the country. Well, in the church, it ought not to be. In the church, it ought to be 
e pluribus unum. It's supposed to be like the oneness in God. Oneness of purpose, oneness of judgment, oneness of message, mutual joy, mutual care, mutual affection, mutual drive. These are the things that define the intimacy of God. And that ought to define the oneness in the church. Unity among Christians, it needs to be more than a mere theory. It's something that Jesus intended to have a very specific source and a very specific product. And that's the next things I want to talk about. So secondly, the providence of unity. Now when I say providence, I don't mean providence. Uh, The word providence means origin or source. So Jesus talked about the source, that unity would have a very specific source or origin. And you say, Rick, if that's what it means, that's a simple, why didn't you just use the word source? And I'm saying, alliteration, people. <laughs> I had to keep my P's together. I have a very big thesaurus. Don't judge me, okay? So <laughs> it, it makes my heart happy. Okay, so providence, meaning source, okay? There's an origin. I'm gonna throw out the word providence from now on, just so you don't you know, write me letters about the fancy words I use. So, so uh, source, there's a source of, of unity. There's a specific source. Let's go back to the text. John 17, 20. I am also praying for those who will believe in me through their message. So who's there? Who's the there he's referring to? He's referring to the disciples. The people, that's you, who would believe in me through their message. The apostles, the specifically commissioned 12. That's who he's talking about. So Jesus is saying, Christian unity has a source. It has a sun around which every iteration of church forever will orbit. And the source is the apostolic witness about Jesus, about his life, about his ministry, about his teaching, about his death, about his resurrection. That will be the source of our unity. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. So Acts chapter 2 verse 47 says the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The first people to be called Christians were people who accepted the apostles' teaching. Now, of course, we actually have the, you say, this is magical. The the apostles' teaching is a source of our unity. Where is this thing? Where is the repository of the apostles' teaching? You have it. You have it in your hot little hand if you have a Bible. This is where it's been collected is the repository of the apostles' teaching in our scripture. So now let's be honest about scripture. Christians can see it so differently. So how can I maintain that it's a source of unity? Some will say, Rick, scriptures are a source of our divisions. We didn't have that dang Bible, we wouldn't be so split. Well, friends, ever since the beginning of the church, there have been, even inside of apostolic affirming communities, in other words, communities committed to the apostolic witness about Jesus, there have always been disputable matters. What Paul calls disputable matters, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. What's a disputable matter? That's a fascinating phrase. Already like fluent there in the early church to talk about the idea that there were areas where sincere Christians who followed the apostolic witness about Jesus disagreed and debated. Even in the first generation of Christians, they disagreed and debated about stuff. Well, friends, if that's the way it's been since uh, AD 45, that tells me that this collection of the apostolic witness, i.e. the New Testament, is, is kind of like um, this rubber band here. So that means it's got a lot of flexibility. There's room for the diverse expressions of different kinds of church inside of the apostolic witness. Look at all the many shapes that it can take. It's really cool. 
Like, wow, almost an infinite number of shapes that it can take, almost, I say. Also, like this rubber band, the apostolic witness is constantly pulling every iteration of church back, back, back. There's pressure on my hands. And that pressure is pulling them back to a center, not to fly off the handle, but rather to come back, come back, come back to the center, who is Jesus himself. That is to say, the living word who is inside the word. Get it? That's why Jesus called the word. He is the living word inside of the written word. And this rubber band of the apostolic witness about him is pulling the church back to its common center. But because there's a common center and Jesus was a real guy who really said real things, that means that there's some things that he wasn't. And that means it can't infinitely, uh, you know, accommodate infinite amount of flexibility. You can actually, like, stretch this thing so far that you can break the bounds of apostolic witness. What do you call that when you break the bounds of the apostolic witness? Well, I'll tell you, what you have isn't Christianity anymore, right? Jesus gets to define the faith, right? The faith, the faith in his name. And he said that it would be defined by his, apost- uh, his apostles' witness about him. You break that witness. What you're doing now is you're living in something else that's not Christianity. It's a new religion. And so what do you call a group that has stretched the apostolic witness of the word to the breaking point? What do you call that? Well, I'll tell you what we used to call it. It's kind of, it's a word that's fallen on really hard times. It, the word, we used to call it a cult. That's what we used to call it. And we tossed out the word, I'll tell you why. Because whenever you said the word cult, if you meant sub-Christian group that believes non-Orthodox things, that, that's not what people thought about. What people thought about was scary bearded guy in a toga drawing brainwashed followers into a commune so he could have sex with the women. That's what people thought about. So you said, well, that's a cult. Then immediately people went to ding, you know, Hale-Bopp Comet cult and, you know, all the weird stuff. These pictures, okay? That's where people's minds went, right? So that's not what I have meant. And that's not what a lot of people have meant when they've said the word cult. Uh, The word cult first described any sub-Christian group that has left the fundamentals of the faith. In other words, they've left the apostolic core, right? And they could be fine people who don't follow people off to a commune someplace to drink the Kool-Aid and kill themselves, right? That doesn't necessarily what it means, right? You can use the word cult to remember, by the way, what, what the apostolic core is that sub-Christian groups routinely violate. In other words, what is the apostolic core that gets broken when sub-Christian groups break off? We'll use the word cult like an acronym and you can find out. So, beginning with the, word, or the letter C, Christ. All sub-Christian groups demote Jesus. That's the first thing they do. By the way, any demotion of Jesus is an unorthodox demotion because he begins at the top, right? He begins at the very top. The Father and I are one. So if Jesus is an angel, as some sub-Christian groups believe, or if Jesus is one of many gods, or if he's a mere prophet, or if he's merely a cynic sage, a witty country preacher or prophet, if he's any of those things, any demotion of Jesus is a heretical demotion because in Christian theology, he's at the very beginning. That's, that's his testimony about himself, and that's what the apostles preach. I and the Father are one, okay? So that's the first thing. Second, the U would be ultimate authority. Sub-Christian groups, all sub-Christian groups, add to or demote the role of Christian scripture as the rule for life and faith. 
And that's not to say that Christians don't have legitimate disagreements or debates about the Bible or about Scripture, but when you start to define Christianity outside of its early witness, and that's what the New Testament is, it is the most reliable, earliest testimony about Jesus. When you start to define Christianity outside of that, as Muslims have done and Jehovah's Witnesses have done and Mormons have done, when you start to do that, you're inventing something new. You have every right to do that, you know, it's America. But the result isn't Christianity anymore. The result isn't Christianity because it isn't apostolic. Then the L, L stands for life eternal. All sub-Christian groups always reduce the unique character of all Christian preaching for 2,000 years and that is reduced to one word and the word is grace. So all sub-Christian groups will always take this unique factor of Christian theology, this idea that you cannot earn or merit redemption and put any spin you want on it the way any uh, you know, religion would describe it, nirvana, happy hunting grounds, you know, the bliss, whatever. There's no access to that in Christianity apart from the activity, the mercy, and the grace of God. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't work your way to it. And in this way, Christianity is set apart forever from all religious systems that have ever been. And all sub-Christian groups always want to demote grace and drag Christianity back to the fraternity of world religions and make it no longer stand apart. Well, we have to go with what the apostles said about this. In fact, the brother of Jesus, again, Acts 15, 11 said, we believe we are all saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Same as everyone. That's the apostolic witness about grace. Then T, T stands for the role of the teacher. So, so all sub-Christian groups demote Christ, they demote scripture, they demote grace, but then they promote the role of the teacher. So in all sub-Christian groups, the role of the teacher is not a servant leader, the way Jesus described it for us in Matthew 20. They are to be served, you know, kiss the ring, and they get to define life and faith for the group over and against scriptural authority, usually adding to it or subtracting from it, okay? So now you kind of have an understanding. The nature of Christ, the means of salvation, the rule for faith, and the role of teachers, that's a quick way of summarizing what you cannot change about Christianity without inventing a new religion. And we talk about this in our Foundations 201 class. I mentioned investigations, that's 101. Foundations is 201. We talk about the stuff that cannot change, the eternal core of Christian belief. However, I will say this. Those fundamentals don't discount theological diversity within the church. In other words, unity does not mean uniformity. And guess what? It's been like that since the beginning. In fact, the Apostle Paul acknowledged some diversity within his own ministry. One guy had theological diversity within his own ministry. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, talking about his own philosophy of ministry. He says, I have become all things to all people so that I may by all means save some. So let me translate that for you. I translate the gospel into Jewish context and I've translated the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, into pagan context and I've done so without transforming it, that is to say altering it back into Jewish law or without transforming it into pagan lawlessness. You understand? He's translated it without transforming its fundamental character. So cultural translation of the gospel into different cultural contexts for the sake of winning as many as possible is good. In fact, it's set there in Paul's own philosophy of ministry. But it demands that the church is going to be diverse and it's going to emphasize different things. Of course it is. If you're trying to reach a first century pagan Greek, do you think that the iteration of church is going to look a little different than this? Yeah, we look very different. 
But we also look very different from the Jewish communities that James led in the mother church. Very different. Okay? So we're going to emphasize different secondary things. Now, when it comes to how you apply this to your interactions with Christians, especially online, because you know these theological debates get heated in social media, you need to do one thing, and that is to learn which way you lean. We need to have a self-awareness when it comes to the twofold idea of unity, not uniformity. Let me say it another way. You need to be aware which way you lean. So, are you too ready to break with brothers or sisters over a point of apostolic tradition and not be flexible over disputable matters? Is that your lean? If you have a knee-jerk response, is that it? That's your lean. Or do you lean the other way? Are you too ready to fudge the apostolic core for the sake of cultural accommodation to make it more palatable for outsiders? Which way do you lean? Guess what, friends? Everybody's got a lean. So it's no sin to have a lean, right? Because we see that there was diversity in the early church in order to reach outsiders to win as many as possible. But at the same time, there was rugged adherence to an apostolic core that must not change so which way do you lean if you've got a lean you can now identify it so that you can know which way you must exert effort in order to do what preserve unity how are you going to preserve unity you got to know which way you lean so you know which way you got to counteract your impulses so that you may preserve oneness which as we said was so critical to the heart of jesus so it's a tightrope And you know what they say about tightrope walkers? They say they're always falling. They're always falling. They're just constantly correcting. They're in a constant state of correction. And so maybe that could be you and me when it comes to our unity. It's just recognize, I'm leaning, I'm leaning, correct, correct, correct. I'm leaning, I'm leaning, correct, correct. You're always correcting, you're always correcting because nobody gets this thing right, not perfectly. But here's the other good news. The apostolic core helps us to walk the tightrope to preserve unity. In other words, What follows, what I'm going to read to you next, is apostolic sanctioned doctrine about how we should hold our doctrine. Are you with me? There's doctrine about doctrine. That's fascinating when you think about it, right? There's not just the teaching, then there's teaching about the teaching. Okay, and here it is. I'll just give you one example. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Here's Paul. It says, Be completely humble and gentle, Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now take the last thing first. Make every effort. So the first thing to remember about Christian unity and correcting for your lean is to know that it will take effort. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take effort to grow and to tolerate secondary things that make us uncomfortable in other churches or with other Christians. It's just going to be hard. It's going to take effort. So make the effort, Paul says. Make the effort. It's going to take effort. Make it. Do it. But you say, well, wait a minute. What if those things are grieving the heart of Jesus? Should I also make an effort to be unified with those sorts of things? Well, listen, friend. You've already identified your lean, okay? So good, good for you. You know, if that's, your, if that's your sentiment, you've identified your lean, but know this, all right? Paul will say in his letter to the Corinthians, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So there was Paul not really sweating it, right? Like he wanted the church to be united and not divided, but he said, listen, if there's divisions among you, eventually that's gonna come out in the wash 
and the Lord's going to give you his commendation or not on the day of judgment. AC3, like we, we should take advantage of our cultural moment in this. And there is an incredibly important and cool cultural moment, and, and it kind of, we talked about it a bit last week. There exists today an enormous hunger for unity. In our culture, there's an enormous hunger for unity, for tolerance, for all the colors to just bleed into one, right? There's an incredible, incredible hunger for that. Our neighbors, in fact, are so hungry for that, they're willing to abandon truth to get it. How much for unity? That'll be seven truth dollars, please. All right. I'll part with my truth to get some unity. That is the nature of things outside the church. Well, we can't go there, right? Obviously, we can't go there. We, we who accept the apostles teaching about their, the, the unique mediator between God and man, we can't abandon the objectivity of truth. But surely, we can play to the hunger that people have for oneness, for unity. And I say to myself, what better place than here in the church for it to come to fruition what better place to satisfy your hunger for oneness and unity than in the church which from the beginning has been the community where there is no longer male nor female uh, slave nor free barbarian scythian greek or jew for we are all one in christ i mean the unity at the center the resources for unity have always been here at the center of the fellowship of jesus why not satisfy the hunger for oneness here in the church that calls itself after the name of Jesus who called all of his lost sheep home, called all of them lost. So we're all equally screwed up. There's no more egalitarian place in the church. We're all equally screwed up and we all get in the same way by the grace of God or not at all. This is a great place for unity to flourish. But then finally, what did Jesus assume would happen if we got it right? What is the promised product if we get the unity thing right, sourcing it as we are talking about in the apostolic message? Well, let's go back to the prayer, shall we? John 17, 21, I pray that they may be united with us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. So the product of our unity, online, offline, wherever your interactions are with other Christians, is going to win converts. That's kind of what he's saying. I mean, I maybe hesitate to say it so baldly, but Jesus is trying to tell you something, that the product of our unity will be more people accepting Jesus as the sent one of the Father. That's, that's the promise that's being held out. And you wonder maybe at the lack of effectiveness that that's not... A, local church effectiveness isn't a report card on the lack of unity because that's what Jesus tied them he tied the two things together and it makes sense doesn't it I mean of course it makes sense because if I'm not making an effort to preserve unity the default setting is factionalism and factionalism is unattractive and it's not only unattractive it's worse than that listen to Paul this is Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And then he lists. It's a long list of sin, uh, manifestations of sinful behavior. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. He keeps going. I'm going to skip most of the list because most of you skip most of the list and you most importantly, we skip the last three things. If you manage to read it all the way to the end, here's what we get to. Manifestations of the sinful nature. Quarreling, dissension, factionalism. 
And what's factionalism? The feeling that everybody is wrong except those in my own little group. That's what factionalism is. So here's the rich irony that I've noticed, and I've seen a lot of Christians in a lot of churches in my 52 years. What I've noticed is a lot of Christians who would never dream of doing all the other things on Paul's list, they actually take pride in doing the last three things on his list. Wouldn't dream of the first things, actually take pride in doing the last things. It goes something like this. Because I'm a spirit-filled, born-again, Protestant, evangelical, free Methodist of the Missouri Synod, and those Mennonite brethren are irredeemable reprobates. Something like that, right? Something like that. So they're actually trying to clarify that they would never indulge in the sinful nature because they're indulging in the sinful nature. A few years ago, a man started attending our church. This is actually quite a while ago. It's probably 10 years ago now. He started attending AC3 and he'd come from another church in town. I knew that church really well. It was a good church. I knew the leadership in that, in that um, church. They was having some problems. And he was having some difficulty with what, what, some of the things that were being taught in that church and what was happening in that church. And these, I will say this, it were important areas of conflict, but they weren't major. In other words, the church hadn't left the creeds. You know, it wasn't a cult, all right? So that's the assessment. So I could tell that the real problem here was broken relationship and a factional spirit. And as I talked to him one day about him getting more involved, he wanted to meet with me so he could talk about getting his you know, oar in the water and start rowing with AC3. And that means bringing everything he had to the game. And that meant, you know, his, his time, his talent, his treasure, you know, start giving to the church, that kind of thing. And that's, the, that's what the conversation was going to be about. And, and in the middle of that conversation, I don't know how else to describe it for you other than the Spirit of God woke something in me as he's talking to me. And it was just an overwhelming impression that said something like, this is my bride, Rick. What strikes at her unity strikes at me. Protect her. And so I kind of steered the conversation in a completely different direction. So I said to this man, this tithing, serving man, I said, friend, you need to work through your challenges at that other church. You need to work through your conflict at the other church. It's not a sin to be here, but it's so much better for you and your unchurched family members, because I know he had especially two unchurched sons who had just left the faith, and part of their whole deal was the way churches are. I said, it's so much better for you and your unchurched family for you to preserve unity than to settle for division. And you know what? He was shocked, like slack jaw. He was like, uh, he's picking his jaw off the floor. I think he's wondering why I, a pastor, just basically released someone who would have counted towards my nickels and noses. And he knew that's how pastors keep score. Dude, you just took points off the board, man. And literally, this is what he said. He said, why would you, this is his, his words, not mine, why would you let go of a paying customer, he asked. Why? because the church is not a store, and because the gospel is not given to build my kingdom, but to build God's kingdom, because the church doesn't belong to me, she belongs to the bridegroom. She is for him, and what's best for the church, capital C, may not be best for me, or my ego, or my church. That's why. And you know what? That man went back to that church, and he worked through his conflict, and he made peace, and his whole family came to Christ. And I saw them all at a joint community worship service that we did, and I just crying. 
over the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus that they may be one so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. When the church exhibits more oneness, even if it's at your expense, friend, the world will notice. You know why? Because oneness is attractive. This is what makes it attractive. Let's go back to that verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. This is what makes unity so attractive. Be humble, Paul says. Even when what we hold to tightly, the apostolic core that we hold to tight, we do not hold arrogantly. Even what we hold tightly, we do not hold arrogantly because nobody has it all together. Not you, not me. Be gentle. No matter how wrong someone else may be, you never have a right to be rough with them. Have you noticed that word come up in all three, word, all three weeks so far? Gentle. And then be patient. In other words, the story isn't finished on this person. They're in process. Guess what? They may be deceived today. They may be holding to weird things today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not next week. Maybe not a decade from now. Maybe they'll figure it out. You know whole denominations have abandoned non-apostolic teachings and come back into the fold of Orthodox Christianity? Whole denominations have done that. Be patient. Be patient. Make allowances for each other's faults because of love. So AC3, let's give our amen to Jesus' prayer for unity, will you? How? By clinging tenaciously to the truth, the beauty, the goodness, and the humility of orthodoxy. You know why orthodoxy is humble? Some people think that if you cling to orthodoxy, you're an arrogant jerk. No, that's exactly the opposite. Orthodoxy is humble, you know why? Because it says, I didn't invent this, it's not mine. Orthodoxy says, what I received is beautiful and true and good, and I pass it on to you. It's humble. He says, I didn't invent it. If I invented something new, if what I received I decided to flip and transform and make into something that fit my sensibilities, that's arrogant on my part. There's, hu- there's hu- tremendous humility in orthodoxy. It says, I didn't invent it. It's not mine. It's not my gospel. It's not my message. So what I received, I pass on to you. But secondly, by making every effort to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be loving across secondary issues and our petty divisions, friends. And it begins like right at home. It begins with the petty divisions in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, and with our church friends online. Why? Why? Because oneness is winsome. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. May you fill the church with your spirit as we give our amen to your prayer. As we hear you pray and we say amen, Lord Jesus, even so may we be one, even as you are one. Oh, Lord, help us to put aside petty divisions. Oh, Lord, help us to put aside our pride according to secondary issues and cling only to the word, the living word who lives at the center of the written word. And in so doing, Lord, may the world know that you were sent by the Father to save souls. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.